Welcome to Transformers, the podcast about how business people and policymakers are creating a sustainable future. I'm your host, Kai Embren. In today's program, my guest is Jonathan Porritt, the founder and director of Forum for the Future, a UK leading sustainability charity. He was a chair of the UK Sustainable Development Commission between 2000 and 2009 and work that over time that influenced governments and UK Parliament's policies on climate change and sustainability. He helped to set up the Prince of Wales Business and Sustainability Programme in 1990 that later became a part of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership. He has been in the front line of environmental campaigning for more than 45 years. He is a writer, a broadcaster specialized on sustainability issues. Hope in Hell, his latest book, is a powerful call to action on the climate emergency. Welcome, Jonathan. Uh, Thank you, Kai. Like no, it's very good to be taking part in your podcast series, which seems to be doing very well. So that's wonderful. Glad to be part of it. In your book, Hope in Hell, a decade to confront the climate emergency, hope is an important factor in the transition of a society. Can you give us a background of your thinking? What is Hope of Hell? The title of the book, or is it about trying to say or explain something? I am, as you probably remember, Kai, an ex-English teacher, so I like alliteration and having hope and hell in the same title pleased me just from the phonics part of it, okay? Yes. But it was a, an easy way of capturing what the book is about, which is to bring together the latest climate science, to contrast that with the latest climate politics, and out of the combination of those two things, to try and work out whether we have got authentic reasons to be hopeful, and we can come back and unpack that a bit, because. Mm. It's a very different thing from optimism, for instance. The authentic reasons to be hopeful and what we need to do if we're going to be able to draw on that reservoir of hope to sustain our campaigning endeavours for the next, however long we have to go still on this campaigning road. And you know I've been on it for quite a long time, so I imagine there's probably quite some time still to go. I hope. That would be really nice. Yes, yes. Well, uh, I will go direct into uh, the little bit of uh, some years back in, in, in the history to get a little bit of your uh, analyze and or some reflections um, when uh, you and your experience from the time of the UK Sustainable Development Commission between ah. 2000 and 2009. <laughs> Yes. Can you, can you draw any conclusion when it comes to issues like governance and leadership of today's government's policies and actions with the focus on climate change and sustainability? It was, a, it was an amazing time to be asked to take on that role because the Sustainable Development Commission was a completely independent body, although it was funded by the government and it was funded by, in fact, in the end, nine different government departments through the cabinet office. But we were independent and all of our appointments were independent and we had genuine access to government at the highest level. So I reported directly to the prime minister at that time, to Tony Blair, and all of the commissioners had access to the different ministers in the different departments that we worked with. So it was a very 
it was a very special time to be trying to bring sustainability into the heart of government. But in the end, I have to say it was pretty frustrating. I mean, there is something about the structure of government that makes it really difficult to do something as integrated as sustainable development. And the reason for that is perfectly understandable, and it, it may even be necessary, which is that every government department, as you know, is structured vertically in reality. Decision-making, policy-making, financing, all flows top to bottom in a silo-based structure. And that is a given in government. You just can't get away from it. So when you're trying to do something like sustainable development, which by definition is a horizontal, it cuts across multiple different areas of interest, themes, timeframes, et cetera, you're always working against the grain of what makes government work. And it either works vertically well or it doesn't work well, but it will always be working vertically. So the challenge that we all have as sustainability professionals, where we're not limited to one particular theme or, or indeed one particular area of expertise, whatever it might be, is where we're struggling against that structural governance problem. I mean, you must have seen that because there are so many times where what we want to do and you think to yourself, well, this is so obvious, for God's sake. It's so obvious. All it takes is this bit of the system to join forces with that bit of the system to think about a little bit of what is outside of the system then and, hey, presto, we've got a solution. But somehow it gets lost along the way. In that sort of system, that the leadership role, it must be, if you look at the system that you need to be more holistic and not look into yeah. the silos, that the, the, the role of the leadership for the government must be crucial, an important thing. Yes, but then you're very dependent on the bits of government that, that are meant to be free of that kind of silo-based delivery. So cabinet office is critical, for instance, because it is obviously meant in the UK system. I'm sure you, there's an equivalent in other um, European country governance systems, but in the UK, it's the cabinet office. It's meant to do the, the integrating bit, the binding together, the synthesis between the different elements or the prime minister's office directly, whatever it might be, and occasionally the treasury. Yes. But those bits of the system tend to work less effectively, in my opinion, as binding agents than as control mechanisms. And that's a rather different thing. Treasury in our country, as you know, is a control mechanism. It's not a, it's not a, a, a future-oriented, strategic thinking part of government. It is really about the public finances and the degree to which those have to be managed, whatever the economic conditions might be. So you, we don't, I don't think Treasury does a great deal of integration at all, let alone strategic future-oriented integration. Mm. But, uh, but you look at the system today and compare it when you were more active within the government uh, organization structure. Is it easier today or is it as it was the time you... <laughs> I have no idea, Kai. I have no idea because when I stopped doing that role in 2009, we then immediately went into a period of time where we had a conservative government, basically a conservative Lib Dem government from 2010 and pure conservative government from 2015. And if I'm being absolutely 
frank about this. I, I really dislike and disrespect the kind of politics that came in in 2010. Um, I thought it was at best kind of brash, brittle, superficial, destructive, at worst, an ideologically abhorrent arrival in our midst. And the first thing that that coalition government did in 2010 was to dismantle the whole sustainable development structure that had been painstakingly built up across government and the regions and local authorities in the UK over the preceding 50 years. Within a year, the totality of it had gone. So they were real barbarians when it came to trying to get their heads around how sustainable thinking and policy making, more sustainable thinking and policy making, would assist them in delivering their governmental objectives. They weren't interested in that at all. It didn't fit ideologically. It's got nothing to do with their crazy zealotry around small state government and and a real a contempt for civil society. So, you know, I I've not unless I could help it, I've not talked to a single minister amongst that bunch of crooks. Um, unless really and truly I had to. But um, some of the years uh, after you have left, um, you at least got the climate law in place. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that isn't to say good things didn't happen. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one of no, the first in, in, in the Northern Europe, uh, to put that forward. And Yes, and and, that was very significant. You're right. Yeah. And uh, when we look at the dialogue around the, the Green Deal that you talk about uh, and write about in your book, um, that seems to be some sort of sources around that uh, and the dialogue you have around the Green Deal, will that be a, a significant? Uh, it's possible. It's possible. And I, I do try to remain a little bit more objective than I am by instinct. Um, so occasionally I do give the government the benefit of the doubt on this. As to the reality of that, Kai, right now, well, you, you're observing it as closely as I am. I, I, I wonder at the warm words that we get about the next in green industrial revolution or Green New Deal, building back greener or whatever it is. I mean, between them, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, our chancellor, have created an entire lexicon of empty green words. Delivery of this, there are only two practical manifestations of that at the moment. One is a two billion pound green homes grant program to help retrofit housing. It's not well designed and it isn't going to deliver what it hopes to. And secondly, we've got about a billion thereabouts for citywide alternative transport solutions. So immediate responses to the consequences of COVID-19. And that money is being spent and it is making a difference in a lot of UK cities. So that's three billion. So I don't, that's, that's significant. But in comparison to the level of investment we need now in a Green New Deal, it's paltry. And the onus now, the pressure now is on this government. Every day I read of a kind of new business coalition or NGO campaign or academic approach, or even investors now, because of course, capital markets are pushing harder and harder on this. And they're saying, for God's sake, we have to have, it's fine to say we're going to be net zero carbon by 2050. It means absolutely nothing 
if you don't know what we're going to do between now and 2030. And given that we're the president of the next COP conference of the parties at the end of next year, you've got to get your fingers out and set the lead by demonstrating what a real plan of action would look like, not just a, a declaration. If we turn into a discussion related to the central government and the local government role, can you see anything that is hopeful uh, with the stronger local and regional engagement in the policies and actions? I, I don't know. Um, when they were elected in 2010, the one of the first things that the new government did was to get rid of the entire regional infrastructure. So in the previous decade or previous 15 years, the Labour government had built up a combination of institutions, things like regional development agencies. Uh, most of healthcare was organized regionally. There were regional assemblies. Now they weren't proper parliamentary processes, but they were an expression of regional civil concerns, and they had some impact for that 10-year period. That all went out of stroke, the whole of that regional infrastructure. And the UK suffers historically through massive over-centralization. And you can see it now. And, and, and again, I'm, I'm kind of loving the way in which these chickens are coming home to roost, as it were, or pigeons coming home to roost, because the two worst things <laughs> about our, our kind of system, governance system, two of the worst things, because there are many, that have happened. One is over-centralization and a refusal on the part of Whitehall, either to trust the other, other governments, other nations in the UK, particularly Scotland and Wales, and therefore not to trust local, basically, to manage, try and manage everything from, from the center. And the second thing, of course, has been this highly pernicious drive towards privatization of the public realm. Of the public realm. And our response to COVID, particularly through things like test and trace, was instantly privatized. There was no possibility that this government, privatizing, centralizing government, would think of doing that public health exercise through local bodies, through Public Health England at the regional and local level. No chance, because it, it's so far from where their politics is. And we are paying a heavy price for that now. Billions of pounds have gone into supporting a, an infrastructure around test and trace for COVID-19 that is largely judged to have been a pretty significant failure. Um, and had we th thought regionally or locally from the beginning, it would have been very different. Yeah. Well, uh, my my own experience from from the relationship between the national and the local level from Sweden is, uh, you know, the, the Swedish municipalities had huge independency. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that has been a driver for different types of solution in different cities, of course. But I think it also uh, have given them a, a, an opportunity to strengthen their targets. And, and when you come down to, to the local level, uh, politician has another role to play and 
uh, compared <laughs> with the national level. So and why do you, Kai, why do you think we, we in the UK have never managed to crack this decentralization story? You look at almost every other European country, um, particularly the successful economies in Europe, they've all got much more decentralized or regionalized um, infrastructure than we have. Why? What is it about the UK that makes that impossible? There must be something. Yeah, what is it? What is it? I'm asking you. <laughs> you <you're... laughs> it's just bizarre. Yeah. No, I, I, I coming back to the, that issue many times and, and when I uh, building a relationship between some of the cities in, in Sweden and also some of the uh, UK cities that um, as Bristol and and, uh, and and other yeah other cities that uh, really do good work and and can in, inspire also uh, collaboration over the political parties um, uh, yeah inbox. I think we maybe I maybe we should be a bit fairer about this we do now have the metro mayors we have a network of mayors here in the mm. UK some of them are pretty influential politically, if not powerful. So the mayors of Birmingham, Manchester and Sheffield and all the rest of it, they are now significant political players in their own right. But of course, there was no financial or fiscal devolution that went with that partial political devolution. So it's half the job. They can't do the job because they haven't been given the economic and financial tools to do the job properly, but it's better than nothing. And actually, I think we can grow that. I think now we're never going to go back from that. We will, I think, see our city mayors and our city regions progressively building up influence and impact. And that has to be welcomed. If we look at the political parties role in the development. I, I actually joined the Green Party, which was then called the Ecology Party in 1974. And I have been a member of the Ecology Party for almost all the time since then. There have been a couple of occasions where I got suspended for being a little bit obstreperous with my colleagues in the Green Party and did things they didn't approve of, like voting for other political parties, for instance, um, or recommending people should vote for other parties. But So I've been involved in the Green Party from, um, yeah, pretty much the, the start of the process. I think the party was set up in 1970. T1 or yeah 1971 so it's it's been a really difficult ride for the green party in the uk as you know we still only have one mp and she is amazing she does happen to be the best mp not just in this parliament but um in many parliaments and that's caroline lucas and maybe, maybe because of your parliamentarian system yes indeed mm. indeed it is i'd like to say it's pretty much all to do with our electoral system, the first past the post system and no proportional representation and so on. But that doesn't go away. That is still a massive impediment to the Green Party in getting the level of representation that it needs in Parliament. And when you ask me the question about what would need to be done to get young people more involved in this, I think the first thing is actually to say, we need to be able to involve young people in a fair system. I mean, the system is so self-evidently unfair that if you're a young person today and you're thinking about, am I going to get involved in politics or not? You pretty quickly start thinking, well, wait a minute, this just doesn't work. This is not right that people's, that the votes of 
so many people cast in every election count for literally nothing. And every election, general election, comes down to these swing constituencies, 60 or so seats in the UK, where depending on whether people go one way or the other way, that constitutes the nature of the next um, government by and large. And you look at the 80 strong majority for Boris Johnson, without having won more than, what was it, I think in the end, something like 38% of the total number of votes cast with a majority of 80 people in the parliament. Now, that includes a lot of people who didn't vote at all, of course. And I guess the next message for young people is, you're gonna to have to turn up and get out there and use your vote. I'm fascinated at the moment in the US with the Trump election. Boy, is there a push to get every single young voter into a polling booth or posting a postal ballot, ballot, whatever it might be. And the climate campaign in the US has been brilliant in terms of saying, okay, you care passionately about climate change. First thing you gotta do, you've got to vote. And you've got to exercise that political will. So it's a kind of two-way street here or quid pro quo for engagement. But, uh, with your experience, but with your experience, do you think the political parties of today will exist 2050, for example? <laughs> or do, think, are we going to see a political innovation? I'm sure we will see innovations along the way. I mean, and I am really interested in that. But I think we've probably been having discussions about will political parties exist from the first moment we got involved in, in green issues and, and it never goes away. But I, I, there are two things going on that I think are really, for me, interesting. I do think citizens assemblies now are going to become more and more important. And I'm fascinated, for instance, by the way in which they set up the citizens assembly for the climate in France, which was a very different kind of climate assembly than the one we had here in the UK, direct response to the gilets jaunes, the protest, Macron on the back foot constituted this uh, exercise in extra parliamentary democracy, 150 randomly selected French citizens, and empowered it by saying, I am intent on implementing all of the recommendations that you come up with. And I think, I haven't got the exact numbers, but they came up with 150 or so recommendations. And Macron has said that they will implement um, 147 of the 150 or something like that. So real, real influence. I mean, that is, that is not insignificant. And he's also created a new climate fund off the back of that to deliver those recommendations of 15 billion euros. So it's significant. So if you do citizens assemblies properly and you ensure that they get traction and leverage on these systems, I think they're going to be very significant. And the other little thing I've been keeping an eye on, and this is, has some um, Brazilian roots, of course, Kai, which might, might mm -hmm. be of interest knowing your deep knowledge about Brazil, is the whole notion of participatory budgeting and beginning to trust citizens enough on certain issues to be able to prioritize the ways in which their money is spent as in the citizens who contribute to the well-being of any particular um, city or region, whatever it might be, should be able to influence, directly influence the ways in which that money is spent. And I think, I hope, this is not actually a huge thing in the UK at the moment, let's be realistic, but I would love to see if we are going to see these systems evolve, I would love to see much more of the participatory budgeting approach. Mm. 
Well, uh, if we then go into the agenda also for uh, the political parties and also leadership in, in, the, um, in the issue of climate change uh, and see the different types of development of how we could uh, reach the Paris Agreement, uh, because um, that's the part that it's heart of, of decision making. Uh, yeah. Um, from all types of stakeholders and of course the political party have a huge role to play but it's much more stakeholders involved in this uh, if we look at the, the technology and you write in your book uh, of power of change with many of the needed technologies that will be uh, built up a low carbon uh, economy and society but even if they exist it doesn't go fast enough where do you see the most interesting development of technology that will help us to solve the climate crisis? I think we have to start with the foundations of what makes any country work, any economy work, and that's energy and food. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more to every economy than energy and food, but you're not going to make for a better world unless you can crack those two. And they're very different at the moment because I see some really accelerated transition stuff going on in the world of energy and energy markets in general. The shock to the energy world from super cheap renewables, particularly solar and wind, where costs continue to come down all the time, and the combination of solar, wind and storage is now so powerful that within a decade, we could not only meet all the electricity demands pretty much of the entire world, which is, I, that's a pretty extraordinary thing to be able to say, Kai. I mean, I've labored for so many years against fossil fuels and the even more wretched nuclear power, but I could never really say we can crack this and we can actually have prospering, just sustainable societies everywhere in the world without any fossil fuels and without any nuclear. I could never truthfully say that until I would say four or five years ago, where it became apparent that this uh, incredible technology revolution, which is going on in storage systems and renewables, would make that possible if our world leaders were to press the emergency button and say, yep, accelerated decarbonization means we've got to be out of fossil fuels for all electricity generation within 10 years, not 15, 20, 25 years, and we've got to start electrifying other parts of the economy, particularly heat networks and transport networks, so that we can then uh, make a huge difference in that area. Totally different, enormously upbeat, markets are getting their heads around it, people are beginning to make lots of money out of it, so everybody feels there's a win-win going on here. Food, very different. And no sense of an accelerated transition going on there in my mind at all. And it is rather intriguing that it's the world of food that is proving to be more obstinate than the world of energy, perhaps because the technologies don't yet have that power to shift whole systems in the way they need to. We talk about green finance and, and a lot of things has happened the, the last years. And one of the areas that we are uh, discussing also, I have it in my podcast program about the pension funds role 
to let the money go to the right places of uh, investment. And um, uh, what do you think is the, the, the barriers of, of change the capital market in the right direction? I know that one of the barriers for a long time, if we're talking about retail pensions, so people's personal pensions or the way in which they invest yes. whatever money they've got, one of the biggest barriers has been that they think they will get a less good return if they exercise their values or their ethical principles by putting their personal pension or putting any investment they might have into an ethical alternative to a standard pension or other financial product. And that has been a deep-seated feeling amongst people for a long time. And the fact it hasn't been true for at least the last five years. So if you go back and you look at the comparative data, as you know, you will see that ethical funds, stocks, have performed at least as well as conventional non-ethical stocks throughout that period of time, and in the last three years have outperformed most conventional equivalent funds and stocks. So the, the most extraordinary thing is this barrier shouldn't be a barrier. It should be a, a fantastic incentive to know that when you put your money into ethical products, actually your returns are going to be better. You are going to end up with at least as good a return. And possibly if you make sensible decisions, you'll end up with a better return. So that's been a huge barrier, Kai. And boy, does it take a lot of energy to shift that barrier, to make people see things as they are, to look at the data and just think to themselves, oh, okay, I get that. Boy, those, uh, those conventional money markets, they've been doing a pretty good propaganda job on me over the last few years. The first yeah. CEO uh, of um, um, the fourth pension fund in Sweden, Mats Andersson, when he already, 2008, um, took the board into a strategy and, and show uh, it was a good way of earning money. Right. <laughs> the climate yeah. strategy. Yep. Then you get so frustrated about, uh, the, is it going to take so long time to change uh, things happen? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it is frustrating. And we can't be doing with that any longer. So I have always advocated, to, in, in essence, for a, a dual approach here. I think the divestment movement has been enormously influential. And I still um, am very supportive of the whole divestment uh, movement. It's It's been influential. I know a lot of people say it doesn't make that much difference. I don't agree with that. I think we're now close to something like 20% of total global capital markets where you've got pledges to divest of one kind or another. That now is complemented by an opportunity to take that divested money and invest it in the things that will actually make a positive difference. But we've got to be much more proactive in our campaigning around finance. I was really pleased to hear that XR, Extinction Rebellion, is now beginning to shift quite a lot of its focus onto capital and money markets, is beginning to look at the outrageous story about big financial institutions that continue to put billions and billions of pounds into fossil fuel companies. So they've got Barclays in their sights right now, and Barclays are going to get everything they deserve. Because when XR begins to turn its firepower on Barclays and then HSBC, and then God knows we need to take on some of those American giants, then it's going to be different. The politics is going to look very different. And the argument in doing so for XR is, you know what? These investments are not going to pay well 
for these banks because you can already see that the returns they're getting on a sector that is now looking more and more jeopardized by the potential for stranded assets in people's portfolios they're not going to get the returns they're hoping for anyway so they don't they don't really have a leg to stand on any longer so i i want to see more militant activism against those people in the capital world of capital markets who pay themselves vast amounts of money think they're super intelligent actually they're among some of the stupidest people in the world when it comes to doing what is the right thing for themselves the people whose money they manage and for the planet but not everybody subscribes to that view, Kai, I have to say. Well, now we are in, in the direction of talking a little bit more about drivers for change. And of course, the financing sector playing an important role. And also, of course, the leadership in the financing sector. But it's also a question of mobilizing people for the future. And you writing in, in your book about the US political scientist, Erika Chenoweth. Mm, it has yeah. done an investigation of hundreds of campaigns over the past hundred years or so. And her conclusion that it needs only 3.5% of the population of any country actively participating in a protest to achieve significant political change. So if we look at uh, the UK population, as you write, 3.5% pr uh, of calculation over 15 years old, uh, over 15 years old, 1.8 million people. <laughs> yeah, that seems that's true. Right. But if you look at the global climate crisis and with 7 million billion people, 3.5% should be about 280 million people <laughs> need to be involved to, to get the change there. So, um, yeah. But, we need to just caveat this a tiny bit, Kai, because as you know, the 3.5 are people who are directly involved in civil protest. So they're not just, the distinction is they're very actively involved. They're not bystanders. They are active participants, often using civil disobedience. The other part of her research is that you probably need close to 50% of the population of any country being broadly supportive of that campaigning minority. So if you see it through the lens of XR, for instance, Extinction Rebellion or the school strikes, for instance, you can easily, you can imagine a trajectory to get to 3.5% here in the UK, as long as that has a groundswell of support from the majority of people who want to see change and therefore feel sympathetic to the activists, sympathetic to the protesters who are out there, if you like, bearing up, taking the campaign to government and to the markets and so on and so forth so it's the combination of the two that i think needs to be needs to be referenced where do you see the growth of mobilizing people uh, we, we have seen of course uh, greta thunberg in sweden fridays for future we don't have time campaigning tedx and eclay daring cities earth hour earth day do you <laughs> see anything new or is that sort of a non-going engine that uh, inspire people what, what what do we need to engage more people to make more uh, rapid yeah. change? i personally think we need two things um, one i can guarantee is going to happen and that is the increasingly disruptive presence of climate change in our lives and people understanding what this means for the future 
So people always used to refer to climate change as a challenge for the future. More and more people now see it as something that is unfolding today with increasingly damaging consequences. And this is very clear in America, where a combination of climate-induced disasters, events in California or Florida or the Midwest, is shifting perceptions about climate change dramatically. It's called the proximity principle. The closer you are to the impact of climate change, the more prepared you are to want your government to do something about it. So that's going to happen come what may. And I believe that will be highly significant. But secondly, for me, it's going to be, it's going to be young people. And I look back to the end of 2019. It's a cruel reality for a lot of young people that everything ground to a halt as soon as COVID-19 kicked in and people have already forgotten that we ended 2019 on a massive surge of support for young people's campaigning and Greta Thunberg has been has been astonishing I mean she is a remarkable leader in that regard quite remarkable in my opinion and we had roughly seven million young people out and about on the streets of cities all over the world by the end of 2019 and it made a difference I want to remind listeners to this podcast Kai that we were the first country, industrial country, to put a 2050 net zero target in law in 2019, directly as a result of campaigning by Extinction Rebellion and young people, Strikes for Friday and so on. Directly as a result, there is no way that government would, that was Theresa May at the time, would have gone for that kind of um, commitment if it hadn't been for this incredibly powerful manifestation of young people and protesters on our streets. So I want to I want to hear it for young people because I think I don't want to dump the responsibility on their young shoulders because the responsibility, frankly, is all ours at the moment. But they have a potential to make a big difference in any other part of civil society. So um, you have a hope for the future. <laughs> I still have. Serious hope for the future. And, and without that hope, boy, our work becomes very difficult, if not completely impossible. Thank you, Jonathan, for it. Thanks. I'm Kai Embren. Follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I will be announcing the future guests to this podcast. And you can expect about two programs a month. And each guest has a unique story of making business and society sustainable. So find out more. Visit my homepage, kaiembren.org. Thank you for listening.